Looking for it to break? No. I'm looking forward to a better week from today. What did you say? I said I'm looking forward to a better week from today. What's a week from today? A week from today is the end of the softball trip and then going home. Oh. Where's the softball trip to? North Carolina. So it'll get a little warmer from here. Yeah. You don't like North Carolina? I. It's just going to be a... I don't have a problem with North Carolina. It's just I'm not as excited as a softball trip because I'm about to go home. Okay. Where's home? Minnesota. Oh, that's right. You said that. Where it's going to be cold. Yep. It's just really ridiculous there right now. Yeah. Well, it's snowing in Seattle, which is even more ridiculous. It never snows in Seattle. Okay, back to the book of Thel. Did you guys read The Marriage of Heaven and Hell? Like it? Yeah. I found, assuming that I read it correctly, there were some ones that I found very funny. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's some really good highlights. <laughs> there's a note at the very end that I thought was good. What's the note? Um, this angel who, is, who now became a devil is no particular friend. We often read mm-hmm. the Bible together, and it's infernal in the four diabolical sins. Yeah. So like you meant the, Blake's note. Yeah. I like how it continues. Like, right? He's like, you'll have one. If you take it, another you're good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's um, go back to Thel. Go to Thel, as they say. <laughs> All right. Sorry. We need a vacation. Um, okay. So... Um, We're looking at the um, the clot of clay, speaking to Thel, and um, the clot of clay is the mother of the children of of God, of life, of the world, of nature, of creation itself, and these are really amazing lines. If there's something that seems Blake can seem at the same time not at all modern because he is writing in this mythological language and he's using, well, just even spelling, which is not modernized in any decent edition of Blake, and language and allusions and references to things that feel really something different from the modern world. And yet also he can feel like the most modern of poets just in the kinds of things that he says that you won't find really in anyone else. So that when the clod of clay says something like, how this is sweet made I know not, and I cannot know, I ponder and I cannot ponder, yet I live and love. And... So I ponder and I cannot ponder that doubleness of feeling. I ponder and I cannot ponder. It's, can, I'm exaggerating slightly what is almost a contradiction in a line like that, I ponder and I cannot ponder. It's not actually a contradiction, it's like I know not and I cannot know, 
which is I ponder, but I can't figure it out. I, I, I think about it, but I can't get to the bottom of it. That would be the way to make it least surprising, but also maybe least interesting. What would you do with a line like that? I ponder and I cannot ponder. Yeah. I read it as um, the cloud of clay tries to have the capacity of like reason and thinking, mm-hmm. like to source, um, to think about basically the overthinking that Tell is doing, mm-hmm. but she can't because she's a cloud of clay. Yeah. So now she's just content with her role, which is living and loving, not yeah. thinking about things. Yeah. Okay. So the. She's content, God kisses her, God allows her, God loves her, God allows her um, to live within innocence and gives her a crown that none can take away for the innocence in which she lives. And she accepts that, how this is sweet made, I know not and I cannot know. So I know this happens, but I cannot know how it happens. And that would, that would be preaching a doctrine of acceptance. That is, accept God's love and don't try to analyze it, which would be something other than accepting it. It might be that it's not necessarily the same thing as rejecting it. You could <coughs> think you're accepting God's love and want to analyze it. But what she's saying is that God is telling her that part of his love to her is to say to her, to the clod of clay, that you don't have to figure out why I love you. And that's a way of saying that love is unconditional. If you want to figure out why there's love, then you're asking the conditions for love. And that's something different from unconditional love. So it's a way of saying, as we would say now, that love is unconditional. The love that God gives the clod of clay is unconditional. And... Therefore, she needn't ponder it. I know not, and I cannot know. And cannot is, nevertheless, suggests a kind of limitation on her part. It could be that the limitation is, I can't be up to the infinity of God. How can anyone know what God is about? But it could be that it's the limitation of innocence. That is, I, a clod of clay, cannot know. The worm can't even speak. And I can speak for the worm. So there is a hierarchy of ability, of capacity, of the power to think. But it's okay that I can't go farther than this. I ponder and I cannot ponder. I think the real question is why does she ponder? Does that seem asking too much? Does that seem like pushing this, pushing a phrase which is good in itself, taking it apart too much? To ask why is it that the clot of clay ponders? One of the things about reading or going to the movies or watching TV or having any kind of literary or narrative or poetic or aesthetic experience is that you will often think the questions are beside the point. That is, 
you may like some show, your friend may not like it, and what they won't like about it are ridiculous aspects of it, things they think of as ridiculous. And you will think it's ridiculous to get hung up on some ridiculous question that they have. In other words, if you really like the show, the fact that they are objecting to some inconsistency and it seems besides the point. And we do that all the time. We think that things are besides the point, that they don't really matter and that anyone who focuses on that is wrong. On the other hand, we will often say the reason you don't like it is that you miss this really subtle point that is really, really interesting and that makes sense of what's going on. And so all discussions about literature, when they're actually discussions, will take something like the form of thinking about what matters more and what matters less, and what is something, what is, what is background and what is foreground, what is a setup and what is being set up. And the all things set other things up, or all, th all effects are effects that are set up. One obvious way to think about this is just to think about how rhyme works in literature, which is, or in poetry, in rhymed poetry, which is that we can frequently figure out what word the poet had to come up with in order to rhyme the word that she wanted to rhyme. So it's not that the poet wanted to write a poem about a glove and searched desperately for a rhyme for the word glove and then finally came up with the word love. It's if you have glove and love being rhymed, it will usually be the case that glove is something that the poet had to come up with in order to find a rhyme for love. Not always. You might be reading an epic poem about glove making and at some point someone says that, uh, that the that his childhood in the glove factory was for him a time of love. And if the rest of the poem is about glove making, you're not going to think, oh yes, the entire poem was written about glove making so we could get this one rhyme. You'll think that the poet had an opportunity or was looking for a rhyme and there was a great one right there, ready to hand, easy to find, which is love. So it's not always the case that the stranger or more unusual word will be the reach word. But in general, we can tell, and we also usually think that it shows a failure on a poem's part, but in general we can tell which word the rhymer had to reach for in order to make the rhyme work. An obvious example of this is limericks. I actually asked my other classes and no one knew what a limerick was. Do you guys know what limericks are? So, oh, you're so much better than there. You're my favorite. No. Um, what's a limerick? You give, you give the one by Nantucket. <laughs> yes. <laughs> did I do that in this class? No, I did no, that in I think 18th century. Classes that didn't oh, yes, in the Chaucer class, too, yeah. yeah. It's like A, A, mm -hmm. B, B, A. Right. And they take the form up to da 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 Right, so a uh, uh, famous, the, the one that I actually remember is the first one I ever knew was there was a young man from Calais who was making gunpowder one day. He dropped his cigar in the gunpowder jar 
there was a young man from Calais. So the I'm glad you like that. The, so the the it's the meter is two long lines, two short lines, a long line. It's it's technically an anapestic meter. And the rhyme scheme, as Max is saying, is A A B B A. Another famous one is there was a young lady named Bright who could travel faster than light. She went out one day in a relative way and returned the previous night. So because she's going faster than light, she goes back in time just to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that that's a little bit of literary interpretation for you. So the in a limerick, where is the reach? This is an easy question. <clears throat> the second lines. You think so? Yeah. So if you wanted to write a dirty limerick, what would you do? Say you had the assignment to write a dirty limerick. You want the punchline, you want the last word to be dirty, right? So there are not that many dirty words. There are a few, but they're not, not that many. So, or if you wanted to, yeah, so what would you do? You come up with a dirty word. Yeah, so you'd insert that word and you'd work backwards. So say you wanted to end your limerick with bullshit, then you would have bullshit be the last word and you would then have to come up with a second line, um, full bit or something, I don't know. And then you would have to come up with the first line and you would have to look for a place or a name that rhymed with bullshit. So it's not that someone said Nantucket, I would really like to write a limerick about Nantucket, but what rhymes with Nantucket? <laughs> it's that fuck it was available to them, and then you look at what rhymes for with fuck it, and if you're from Rhode Island, you might say there was a young man from Pawtucket, or if you're a minor league Red Sox fan of a certain age, you might say there, there was a young girl from Pawtucket, or something like that. The point being that in limericks, it's easy to tell which word is the reach, which is that it's the place or the name that is denominated in the first line. I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit, but that, that tends to be the reach. So in general, we think a rhymed poem is good if we can't tell which word is the word that the rhymer was reaching for. If you can't tell, it means both words feel on the same order of magnitude, their, their, their rightness feels as though it's the same order of magnitude. Yeah? Like, from, in my experience of writing poetry, it's not only about the, um, the sound, like if it respects the meter or mm -hmm. the rhyme, but also if it has a relationship with the word that it's rhyming yeah. with. Yeah. So it's, it's like, well, writing poetry for me is like finding the relationship between words because mm -hmm. not it's like a puzzle like a sudoku almost yes yeah and it's like <clears throat> you they are sometimes it feels like the poem comes with words already even if I don't know them yeah yeah and just reaching yeah it, it's like no it doesn't belong there even if it rhymes and it respects the meter it's like it doesn't belong there yeah yeah and then <clears throat> what you feel like you're doing is you're is you're putting it there only because it rhymes and respects the meter, or mainly because it rhymes and respects the meter. And what you want to do 
is put it there because, like Sudoku, it's part of the entire pattern, and it's the only thing that could be put there. In the same way that Sudoku, every Sudoku is uniquely solvable. That is, there's only one solution to a Sudoku puzzle. So if you don't get the right solution, it means that it that it doesn't fit there. So that's a general view that we have of literature. One you can think of this in movies, for example. I'm just th th this is a kind of microscopic and not deep point but a universal point and therefore worth no noticing. So if you watch a movie or watch a TV show, just notice when someone asks a question that in real life they wouldn't really ask, not a question like, but what were you and Bob doing in that cabin? Which is obviously an important one, but where someone will ask a question like, um, I don't know, why are you late? which is rarely asked in movies or TV shows unless there's an important answer. So those are set-up questions. And what it's, it's a sign of not quite good writing if it's clear that a, that a question is a setup. If the maitre d', someone comes in for a reservation and says to, for a dinner reservation, and says to the maitre d', sorry, we're late, and if the maitre d' then says, why were you late? And then they say, well, there was a murder on 4th Street. The maitre d' saying, why were you late? That's something maitre d's never ask. They absolutely don't ask that in real life, but they also don't ask that in movies. So if, someone, if a maitre d' is asking that in a movie, it's because the script writer wanted a very quick introduction asking the, the question so that the answer, which is the important piece of information, can be delivered. Okay, does this make sense to people? It's, as I say, it's a microscopic thing. It's something that we all recognize is just worth bringing to consciousness. So when you have a line like, I ponder and I cannot ponder, what you might say is, I ponder, the first I ponder, is just something like, I wonder, but, but it's setting up the, and I cannot ponder. In other words, the important thing there is, I cannot ponder, and the first two words of the line, I ponder, are not important in themselves, but only as a background contrast to the important words, I cannot ponder. So that could be one possibility. The other possibility is that they're equally important phrases, that I ponder actually matters, that it's not just, I go so far, but the important thing is I can't go any farther, it might also be important that I go so far. So, so far and no farther, we usually take to mean no farther is the important part. But maybe so far is also important. And if you read it that way, I ponder and I cannot ponder, what would be important about those first two words? Like you want to say something? Well, it feels if last class we were reading the poem that was uh, Schoenfeld's Human Difference from the Natural World. Yeah. Um, and I, I like I, I feel I like I read it that way. But I ponder and I cannot ponder, like the need to ponder is like the uniquely human uh, condition, it seems, when you 
see it that way. So I know I'm just, I guess, like, I'm trying, where does the plot of Adrian Clay, is it called Adrian Clay somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Adrian Clay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested where she has that human attribute. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't seem like the cloud and Lily do, like, they just accept it. Yeah. So it, here it feels like the clot of clay, we've already seen the clot of clay in the songs of experience. We're also, um, if you read the book of Urizen, which uh, we probably won't, but there is an amazing moment when we're told Urizen is a clot of clay. No, Urizen is a figure that we're going to meet. Urizen is essentially for Blake. Urizen is, is, a, is a crucial being who appears in many of Blake's so-called prophetic books, U-R-I-Z-E-N. And his name probably means something like, or probably has some relation to the idea of the horizon. That is, he's a limit. He is thus far and no farther. You can get to Urizen, but no farther. Possibly some hint of Ur, that is the beginning of things, U R which is of a, a, a morphine from which which basically means the source of things and so Urizen is the source of this world for Blake he's often connected to we won't be talking much about this we would if we were doing the later romantics but the figure called the demiurge who is the person or the figure, the divine or the quasi-divine figure who is thought to be God by people who don't know who the true God is. And the Demiurge is the creator of this world, but this world is a broken world, a world of fallenness. It's not that Adam and Eve brought the world into the fall, it's the world was imperfect as created by this substitute for God called the Demiurge. This is the idea behind Neoplatonism, that this world was created not by God, but by a secondary figure. And the true God is who we would like to meet or attain to or achieve by transcending this material world. So within us is something that aspires beyond the materialism of this material world. And Blake was very, very, very familiar with Neoplatonism, Neoplatonic philosophy. Neoplatonism, here's a physics um, connection for you. Neoplatonism has the idea of God as unmoved mover. That is, we all are have a tropism towards God and wish all humans have a spark of the divine which transcends this world. And this world is a world of empirical motion, but what we wish to do is to achieve God. And the, the theology or the philosophical theology of Neoplatonism was something that people whom Isaac Newton read and knew well were very, very interested in. And the basic idea was that all things are attracted to and aspire towards God. And this eventually turns into Newton's theory of gravitation. That is, that the idea of, gravi- of gravity, the way Newton thinks it, is an idea that, uh, that originates before it comes into physics, it starts in Neoplatonism. And this aspiration towards God 
God is the unmoved mover and this fallen world is not the true world. Urizen is the creator in Blake of this fallen world. So he is a fallen figure. He is God as the Christians for Blake, as Orthodox Christianity worships God, the God they're more or less worshiping is Urizen, and the true God transcends the Urizenic God, the God of the horizon. And at one point we will find the strange line, Urizen is a clod of clay. And one question to ask is, is Blake thinking of the clod of clay in Fell? Is he thinking of the clod of clay in the Songs of Experience when the clod of clay is connected to Urizen or not? If he is, it's a strange connection to make, but one worth noticing. If he isn't, it's just because the term clod of clay might just be a familiar enough term for him that we are overreading because it's not quite as familiar to us. So there's a question to ask. So at any rate, what Ryan is saying is that it seems to be the human difference or the thelic difference, if we think of thel as human, in a way that all these other denizens in the garden in the Vales of Har are not, that her difference is that somehow she doesn't feel as though she belongs there. That Wallace Stevens difference, that from this the poem springs that we live in a place that is not our own and much more not ourselves. Whereas the clod of clay and the worm and the cloud and the lily live in a place that is their own live in a place that's appropriate to them. It's only the humans who feel displaced. That would be one way of understanding this. And then it would be a surprise that the clod of clay ponders. Not a surprise that she cannot ponder, because it all makes sense that she's here, but a surprise that she does ponder. Do people know who Heidegger is? So, Heidegger, uh, what do you know about him? Yes, that's probably the most important thing to know about him. But before, yeah, before anything else. Before anything else, you should... It's the most important thing to remember about him, is that he's a Nazi. It's not the most important thing to know about him, but it's the most important thing to remember about him. So Heidegger is one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, but remember, he's a Nazi. And... and to be fair, I think... I don't know if you agree, but I think that can be said for the other Nazis or Pound. Which I thought that's what I was laughing. Yes. Yeah. So is Ezra. No, Ezra Pound was a fascist. Yeah. Yeah. But they, 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 they both, to quote Roy, they both did questionable things. Heidegger was much worse than Pound, and Pound was pretty fucking bad. So, they so never forget about either Heidegger or Pound, how terrible, how how vicious and murderous their political allegiances were. So Heidegger, having said that, Heidegger is probably the single most important thinker in the movement called existentialism, or in the way of thinking called existentialism, of whom Sartre is probably the least objectionable or most embraceable of the existentialist thinkers. Yeah. He was ugly, but he was a fashion. Not by choice, but yeah. he was people people yes, there there were there were decades where people dressed like Sartre. 
and probably still do. So at any rate, Heidegger is interested in what it means to be human. And for him, he has a really interesting definition. Not quite a definition, but it becomes something like a definition in Sartre, but a very interesting claim about what is different about humans from all other living beings. And this is in his book, Being and Time, in which he is trying to figure out those two kind of important things, what is being and what is time. Sorry? I think that's on my other classes. So oh, which one? Literature. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so you're substituting literature for being there, which is good. So, being and time, the question is, what, why, Heidegger's great question is, why is there something rather than nothing? That, for him, is the great question in philosophy. Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, I know what you quantum theorists are going to say, but that's not Heidegger's answer. The, the existential question is, why is there being to begin with? Why is there something rather than nothing? And where he goes on, or what this relevance has to human experience is his definition of the human being. So the word for human being, well, in English we say human being. And in German there's a similar coincidence or non-coincidence connection between the question of being and the human being. You know, we don't talk about dog beings, canine beings, or simian beings much, but we do talk about human beings. And in German, do you know what the word, the equivalent in German for human being is? No, that's, that's man or person. Dasein, which, Dasein, which means being there, yes. So it's, and in French it's être, uh, a being. You can talk about... A, it can be, an, it's a, as a noun, it means human. In Spanish, it's Really? Okay. Yeah, so, so there are a lot of, at least in the European languages, where the connection is made. And Heidegger was a great truster of etymology. So at any rate, his definition of the human being, or of Dasein, of being there, of the being, is that humans are those for whom being is an issue. That is, to be human is to wonder how there can be such a thing as being. Dogs don't walk around, although there is a good movie about a dog that does seem to do this called Baxdale. Um, but dogs don't walk around thinking, where did I come from? How does it happen that I exist? What brought me into a world outside of me and what in this world outside of me makes me me? So sometimes I used to wonder about my dog, why doesn't he have these thoughts? How does he think it just makes perfect sense that he's a dog in my house and that we play and, and, and run around and do things like that? But to the dog, it makes perfect sense. There's no question about that. But for human beings, Heidegger says, this is a question that occurs in one way or another to every human being. The question, which he calls an anxiety-provoking question, the question of... How is it that there is such a thing as being to begin with? So Heidegger says on his philosophy is he is, he is addressing the question, 
which is the question for all humans. If you know the Gauguin painting, which is actually the Museum of Fine Arts, of it's a gigantic painting of Tahiti, like many, many of his paintings, and it is people in Tahiti who are standing and sitting, and the, the frame of the painting are the questions, where do we come from, who are we? Do you know the painting? Yeah, in French. Yeah. And the, the things are in French. Yeah, because that was his language, but it's qui sommes nous, um, du, du, du venons-nous? Yeah. Yeah, but so it's three questions about in which being is an issue for them. So Gauguin's point is that that's what it means to be human. If being is an issue, you're human. If you see the movie Blade Runner, it's an issue for the replicants, and that's what makes them human, that being is an issue for them. In the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, it's not an issue for the androids. But what's so great about the movie is that being is an issue for the replicants in the movie. So that is, seems to be the distinction that the Book of Thel has been erecting so far between Thel and everyone else. For Thel, being is an issue. A way you could say being is an issue is to say that mortality is an issue, but the point is that it's an issue. And now we get to this strange moment, I ponder and I cannot ponder, yet I live and love. And if you take the I ponder part seriously, then it might be that you can feel something like an impulse on the part of a representative non-human or non-Thelian figure within the veils of horror to ask that question. And then somehow that question is prevented from full articulation within the clod of clay. That is, there's an impulse to ask that question. And it may be that if she represents the lily and the cloud and the worm, that she is the one who gives fullest voice to something that is repressed in all the other speaking figures within the veils of horror. So they can all speak. They speak to Thel, Thel answers them, as everyone can speak or seems able to speak in the Songs of Innocence, and as many figures are able to speak in the Songs of Experience. So they can all speak, and the it might make sense to say that for being to be an issue, you have to be someone who can speak, or it might make even more sense to say, as Heidegger probably comes close to saying, that if you can speak, being has to be an issue for you. That is, that language and the question of being go together, that you can't have language without asking that question. But in the Veils of Horror, here are these figures who seem not to be asking that question until the cup, the clot of clay says that she is asking that question, but that she is immediately balked and baffled in pursuing it. And so she goes back to not asking it, that there's, there's an impulse or a wave to ask it. 
I know not and I cannot know, but she knows that she can't know. It's not shut up and calculate as, do you know who says that? Megan, shut up and calculate. It sounds like something I would tell the computer that's not working. Sorry? It sounds like something I would say when mathematics is not working. Oh, I see. I don't know. Yeah. No, shut up and calculate is N. David Merman's response to people who are trying to figure out the philosophical um, philosophical implications of quantum theory. He actually published a paper recently called Shut Up and Calculate. But that's his, that's his famous line. It's a, it's a famous line in physics. So Shut Up and Calculate seems to be what the clot of clay is being told. And the clot of clay tries to ponder but can't. Knows that it cannot know. And that feels there like a limitation in the veils of horror. And it changes, I think, the relationship of Fell to the other figures within the veils of horror, which is so far it's felt like she's being lovingly rebuked. Do you guys agree? I mean, rebuke might be too strong a word, but corrected, lovingly corrected. And so how, how is the correction taking place? How just expand that, elaborate on that. Yeah, Olivia. It feels like like the cloud and the earlier is kind of like you shouldn't even be asking this question in the first place. And so like rather than answering her question, they're just like, well, just don't ask, then it's not a problem. Yeah. Whereas the cloud of clay changes that almost. Just like, well, I'm asking too, but I'm content not knowing or not pursuing. Yeah. And it might be something like I'm content I'm content even though I'm not really content with being content. So that might be the bridge from the, 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 all the other beings within the veils of horror to Thel, is that they're all content because of God's love. But the clod of clay is not content with the fact that she's content. And Thel is not content at all. But this possibility of not being content within the veils of horror, I think the clot of clay gets that perfectly. I ponder and I cannot ponder. Yeah. <clears throat> Would it be a stretch to consider like that the reason I was not decoding, but like the reason that she does ponder and cannot ponder? I like the like the vagueness. Mm-hmm. Like it's like she's waiting to be molded. Mm-hmm. Into like a shape. Yeah. So like. Nice. Makes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense that she tries to ponder since he's the mother of living things. Mm-hmm. So it's like she has that almost element. It's like it's where we get the element of pondering from. Yeah. yeah. From her. Yeah. But then in, in us, it's like fully realized because we've grown from her. Mm-hmm. And then yet because yeah she's like half living half. Dead, yeah. Which also brings me back to like this day when we closed the last class with, with like from Earth you were that Bible verse and then yeah. from to you'll go back. Onto Earth thou shalt return. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. At least that's what I think. Yeah. And so maybe what it is is she is pondering about the fact that she cannot ponder. But of course she can't ponder about that fact long because she can't ponder. So pondering about not being able to ponder. And so there's a limitation there. 
So like she tries to ponder and then she's like, oops, I can't, and then she just laughs. Yeah, yeah. But you feel like there's something unsatisfied there. Weird. Well, I think it's... I think it's Huh, yeah. That there's something that's almost breaking through but not quite. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. If you guys saw Total Recall, the original, there's what keeps breaking through but not breaking through in the Arnold Schwarzenegger character is that he almost remembers that he'd been on Mars before, almost rem <coughs> remembers that he'd been helping the rebels. He has this nagging sense that there's something below the surface that he can't get to, and all the bad guys who are pretending to be ordinary people are reassuring him that, no, these are just dreams that he's having, and there, there's nothing real there. And it might feel like that. What you say? Just the way you were saying that was reminding me of the Truman Show. Yeah, or like the Truman Show. Except that he doesn't know. No, but... But, but just the way everyone else is feeding him a line that, that this is, he's living in this town and that's the horizon and that's the ocean and so on. Yeah, it would be something like that. It would be similar to that. So bringing that back to the songs of innocence and of experience... What would that say about the songs of, of innocence? We ponder, yet we cannot ponder. Something like that. That one possible reading of the songs of innocence and of experience is that it, they are a lamentation over the fact that we lose our innocence. And if only we didn't, everything would be fine. Yeah. Um, like you're gonna have to ask them all. You're going. You're you're forced to. There's no nice getting around it. Yeah. Good. You can't ponder your innocence if you're not if you're innocent. Yeah. But you will eventually have to. Like they'll have to. Yeah. And that innocence itself may be that might be like the Truman Show. That innocence, even in the songs of innocence, we've seen it in the in for example the chimney sweeper, because I am happy and dance and sing, you think you have done me, they think they have done me no injury. That's the experienced version, but it's a kind of giving voice to the innocent song in which the chimney sweeper is happy and dancing and singing. And it's saying, here's what the song is saying, not what the sweeper is saying, but what the song is saying. And what the song is saying is that the sweeper has been injured. So the sweeper is happy and dances and sings, but the song speaking for him, in his voice, but speaking for him, says, but you have done me an injury. And in a similar way, perhaps this is true of all the songs of innocence, that all the innocent figures there are prevented from knowing a truth that would allow them to transcend a situation which is lovely as far as it goes until you see the cracks 
in the glaze until you see the shadows on the other side of things, which you do see in the Songs of Innocence. And the truth, then, is not that they should be confined, like in the Truman Show, or in The Giver, to take a modern example, to this community, but the truth is that what is best about them is not imminent, not something that is that should remain here within this garden protected from the world, but what's transcendent in their innocence, what is seeking to transcend the world. And the only transcendence that they're allowed in the Songs of Innocence and of Experience is a transcendence into the world of experience, into the world of adulthood. That is, either you are a child and you don't know the truth and you're sent to a really gorgeous boarding school without knowing that there are any slums in the world, and that's good. Or you graduate and then you will either be a slum dweller or a slum lord. And that seems to be the two possibilities in the Songs of Innocence and of Experience. That if you're innocent, you don't know that there's evil and it's good that you don't know. It's good for those who are oppressors that there should be all these figures who do not know that there's evil and who actually think that things are okay. And that is that kind of oppression makes them tractable. In some, in some songs more than others, but if you think of something like the little black boy, the little black boy is optimistic and happy because he knows that, his, that he will be loved or thinks he knows that one day he will be loved by the English boy. But what happens in the world of experience, even if the English boy is also an innocent boy, what that poem is suggesting is that what will happen in the world of experience is the English boy will be in the ruling class and the little black boy will be in the oppressed class. And that's something that we feel how bad that is reading the Song of Innocence sung by the little black boy. We feel how bad that is even though he himself doesn't feel it and yet he knows it, because his dream is the little white boy will then love him. And we know that dream is false in the, in the terms of the song, that that song is not about how good the future is actually going to be. It's the expression of a wish, that, and what makes the poem powerful is that we know that the wish won't come true. Like, do you guys all agree with that? Yeah. Because he doesn't, the white boy doesn't really have a voice. No, he doesn't. And that would be part of the point, is the white boy doesn't need a voice. The white boy is not needy. And it might be the case that you only sing out of need. That um, even when you're innocent, you only sing out of need. And that's certainly true of something like the innocent version of the chimney sweeper. But it might be an um, uh, generalizable and and maybe um, fre frequent, if not, if not um, absolute assertion.
but I think for Blake Husing out of need. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that everybody like to go back to the Heidegger claim that everybody I feel okay, everybody probably asks these questions in a different way. Mm-hmm. But not in this like explicit way like oh, this yeah. consciousness of why am I here? Yeah. Because well, at least like where I'm from and there's a lot of suffering. But people aren't walking in the streets and saying how it's more of like the of course in the religious paradigm mm-hmm. and also how that helps to shift blame, like to throw their anxiety mm-hmm. and their guilt and their frustration at this God. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like then it's like the God, it's almost like he's the answer. To mm-hmm. the questions. Yeah, before that, you even ask the questions. Yeah, that they yeah. don't have questions for. So sometimes, like when I was young, I would ask questions like, why is Jesus white and the whole church is black? Mm-hmm. And then I'd get responses like, don't question the ways of God. Yeah. So because God did it, that's enough already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the ways of God don't have to be justified to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I feel like that was like a block Yeah. to like questioning. Right, so you ponder and you cannot ponder. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so one possible way of saying that then is that there, if you, well, if you bring in the notion of, un, of unconscious thoughts, not a Freudian idea, but just the idea that there, that there are things that can be bothering you without your knowing that they're bothering you. And that's, that seems a hard thing to deny, uh, no matter how anti-depth psychology you are, it's hard to deny that people can be worried about something without knowing that they're worried or bothered without knowing that they're bothered or worried without knowing what they're worried about or anxious without knowing what they're anxious about. And so the what you might then say is it turns out that the real thing ultimately that you're anxious about is your being in the world as a first person and that that can and is and religions are designed to preempt those thoughts by giving you answers before you can formulate the questions and therefore telling you how to formulate the questions which is why am I regarded as a sinner? Why am I supposed to fear punishment? Why am I anxious? Because I fear God's punishment. Why is God going to punish me? Religion has the answer to that. So those are all possibilities. And I think Blake would agree with all of those. That is, that what all these figures have is a capacity to ask this question and often that capacity is preempted and guided and distorted by the answers that are given before the question is articulated. And I think that's what you're describing. Um, and one other point. So I'm in an apartment with econ majors, and they are always discussing their homework, so I have a lot of econ vocab that I don't know what to do with. <laughs> and knowledge. Sell it. Sell it. Monetize. <coughs> That's what you should do. Yeah. So, like, when he was explaining, one of my students was explaining, like, 
the concept of how money works is like um, there's nothing and then there's something. So it's like a check and balance. If that makes well, I, I am also a creative writing major yeah. who's repeating what an econ major is. Yeah, 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 no, no. So it's like um, there's almost like an equilibrium yeah. in the world, not just like monetarily. Yeah. And like if you disturb the equilibrium, then it's almost like the force, like the, in physics, it's like, or is it chemistry when you have, okay, never mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah like the, the force, so it's like the balance should be restored. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's physics. Yeah. So it's like when you have the, sweep, the sweeper boy, yeah. he's being oppressed, but he doesn't know that right. he's being oppressed. Right. So the oppressors are taking something from him, so they're mm -hmm. disturbing the equilibrium. Yeah. So there's conservation of of anxiety, let's say, or of repression, or something like that. Yeah. So like in the sense that like he's suffering, but he doesn't know. It's like how does that lack or the disturbance of the equilibrium, the wrongness of the situation, come out in right. an innocent person who isn't aware that there even is an equilibrium. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And the answer would be something like it comes out in the oppression of experience and the oppressed experience that those within the world of experience have, either as oppressors or as victims. And that whatever equilibrium seems to be occurring within innocence is something that is requiring a lot of, of pressures moving against each other in, in a kind of standoff. So, but the basic idea would be something like the figures within innocence are being told that things are okay. And because they're innocent, they're accepting what they're told. So they live in a world that seems to them a good one. And however, the world is not a good one because they live in the same world as those within the realm of experience live in. And one way you can see this is that there's the innocent version of the nurse and the experienced version of the nurse. And we said they were different nurses, and in some sense they are, but in another sense they're not. They both represent what it means to be a nurse. And when you're a child, the nurse is someone who delights in your childishness and delights in your innocence because she shares it. And then when you're older, you find out not the truth, but a truth about the nurse, which is that she's suspicious of you. And that suspicion comes from her own qualities as a secretive, sexually longing, sexually partially repressed person. So the very same thing that, you know, or it's, in daily life, it's grandparents. So little kids love their grandparents, and their parents don't love their grandparents that much. And it's not, you know, the little kids are sure they have a better idea of their grandparents than their parents do. But in some sense, yes, in some sense, no. So that's a typical thing. Is the is the universal difference between in universal cultural difference in 
people's attitudes towards their parents and towards their grandparents. And the, so the same with the nurses, that there's the little kid's version of the nurse and then there's the adult's version of the nurse. And in some sense, it's the same nurse. And therefore, it's the same world. So what we, what we may be learning from the Book of Fell is Blake being more explicit about how the innocent figures within the veils of horror are unable, are prevented from formulating thoughts that would otherwise come to them the way they do come to Thel. And that would make Thel, in a sense, what she is, which is the heroine of the poem. That is, the figure who does ask these questions, who does live within the veils of horror, who does live within what would be the world of innocence in this retelling of a reboot of the Songs of Innocence and of Experience. And she's talking to all the other innocent creatures within the world of innocence. But what she's hearing from them is that they can almost formulate a thought of uncertainty about, the, about this world but the world is actually preventing them from formulating that thought, or God is preventing them from formulating that thought, through his love, as they understand it, but that love may be somewhat oppressive, as love often is. It can, be, it can prevent you from thinking certain things. It can fill you with too much guilt if you think those things. The clot of clay isn't suggesting that she feels guilty, but Thel is certainly feeling guilty, and the clot of clay is partly reassuring her by saying, wondering these questions shouldn't be a reason to feel guilty. But the clot of clay is also saying, God helps me not to wonder about them anymore. And Thel is still wondering. So the daughter of beauty wiped her pitying tears with her white veil and said, Alas, I knew not this, and therefore did I weep. That God would love a worm I knew and punish the evil foot that willful bruised its helpless form, but that he cherished it with milk and oil I never knew, and therefore did I weep. And I complained in the mild air because I fade away and lay me down in thy cold bed and leave my shining lot. So I didn't know God loved us all, and I complained because I'll have to die. And even in the veils of horror, in the Garden of Innocence, let's call it, you still have to die and lie down in the cold bed of clay. So that's where the matron clay answers. Queen of the veils, the matron clay answered, I heard thy sighs and all thy moans flew o'er my roof, but I have called them down. Wilt thou, O queen, enter my house? Tis given thee to enter and to return. Fear nothing, enter with thy virgin feet. So now the clot of clay says, you can see what it's like to be dead. And here, I think this is a crucial question in the poem, is how much does the clot of clay know? When she says, you can come in to the grave. That's essentially what she's offering her. It's okay. You can come into the grave. And I could imagine a horror movie version of the Book of Thel. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, it's really, really creepy. 
Yeah. Especially the Stepford Wives vibes. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, Stepford Wives vibe, vibe, vibes, yes. Yeah. Like but also maybe the... There's some candy down here. Yeah. The Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, oh, Pan's Labyrinth would be a perfect <laughs> analogy. Nice. Yeah, Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth would be, would be a perfect analogy. Because it's both... Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so in she's invited into the Clod of Clay's house, which is the grave. So that's the crucial thing. So then a sudden total change of tone at the beginning of four. Um, who hasn't read recently? Everyone feels like they have. Sorry? I think everyone read Okay. So, do you want to read yeah. section four? The eternal gates turned to the porter lifted the modern bar. Thel entered in and saw the secrets of the land unknown. She saw the couches of the dead and where the fibrous roots of every heart on earth and fixes deep its restless twists. A land of sorrow and of tears so that's amazing that she goes underground or goes northward or somehow both that underground is northward he lifted the northern bar that what she's entering in turns out not just to be death but somehow truth what's under the surface what's beneath the surface some version of hell Tis given thee to enter and to return. That is, she, unlike most people, can go into the grave or go into hell and return from the place. And so in she goes and she sees all the dead. She saw the couches of the dead, but also where the fibrous roots of every heart on earth and fixes deep its restless twists. So Freud very famously said that... He, had, he invented nothing. He discovered nothing. As he put it, the poets were there before me. This would certainly be a place where a poet was there before him. That under the surface, every human heart on earth has fibrous roots, tangled roots, that twist restlessly into this land below the surface, into this place of the dead, a land of sorrows and of tears where never smile was seen. So that should seem kind of shocking after all the sweetness of the veils of horror, but this is what Thel is entering into. So this could be like innocence or experience? Easy question. Mix and match. Are we now would you match the first stanza of part four with the songs of innocence or of experience? Experience. Good. Yeah. So here is some truth that was below the surface. Want to pick up from there, Olivia? Sure. Um, she wandered in the land of clouds, through valleys dark, listening, dollars and lamentations, waiting off beside a dewy grave. She stood in silence, listening to the voices of the ground, till her own grave thought she came. And there she sat down and heard this voice of sorrow breathe from the hollow pit. So there's the pit again. 
and so she finds her own grave. So we're really in horror movie territory, right? So she hears the voices of the ground. She's hears dolors and lamentations. There are many graves waiting off beside a dewy grave. She stood in silence listening to the voices of the ground, so presumably the voices of the dead, although we're not sure because what's about to come from her own grave doesn't seem to be coming from her own voice, doesn't seem to be coming in her own voice, quite the reverse. So she does come to her own grave and she hears this voice of sorrow breathed from the hollow pit, the hollow pit being her grave. And so what does the voice ask, Ariel? Why cannot the ear be closed to its own destruction, or the glistening eye to the poison of a smile? Why are eyelids stored with arrows ready drawn, where a thousand fighting men in ambush lie? Or an eye of gifts and graces showering fruit and coin gold? Why a tongue impressed with honey from every wind? Why an ear, a whirlpool of fears to draw creations in? Why a nostril, wide inhaling terror, trembling in affright? Why a tender curve upon the youthful burning boy? Why a little curve in the flesh on the bed of our desire? So, a series of questions that don't seem homogeneous. That is, a lot of whys, which are... How would you summarize all those whys? Or at least some of them? What would be an abstract summary of what these questions are? Well, why do we Okay, why do we feel if there's so much pain to be felt? Why cannot the ear be closed to its own destruction? What would that mean? Why would it know better? Yeah, but is it, so is that the veils of horror? Are the ears of the lily, for example, or the cloud close to their own destruction? I feel like it's a stronger question than that. How is the eye, why should the eye, why can't the glistening eye be close to the poison of a smile? What would it do to the eye? What good would it do if the eye were close to the poison of a smile? Yeah. It wouldn't be influenced yeah. by the smile. Yeah, so somehow the ear, it's not only that it knows that it's hearing the story that it will be destroyed, it's that it's being seduced. Why is why can't the ear refuse the siren song that will lead it to destruction? If you think of it as the as the sailors in the Odyssey with wax in their ears, that would be closing their ears to their destruction. So it's not that their ears are closed to the report of their destruction. It's that hearing causes you to do something that will destroy you. Seeing when someone smiles at you in order to trap you, to entrap you. That's the poison of a smile. Yeah. It also reminds me of, of like the eye line, the second line. I forgot the name of the Sylvia Plath point when she's in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then she's the stupid pupil, why must you something, everything. Like Yeah. I forget what it is, but yeah. Yeah, but it's, I think it's like on subjectivity as well. Mm -hmm. Like, we can't help 
to be subjective. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Um, okay. Like, why cannot, you can't sort of select which stimuli, like, you want your ear to, like, yeah. yeah, your senses to, like, feel. Yeah. It's, like, all over the place. Yeah, and you can't then resist it. So... The next set of questions, why are eyelids stored with arrows ready, drawn, where a thousand fighting men in ambush lie? So those aren't the eyelids of the speaker or of the seer. So the eye, and the ear and the glistening eye belong, let's say, to the self. And the smile and the destruction belong to someone else. So when we get to why are eyelids stored with arrows ready drawn, that, those are the eyelids of someone else. Why is it that when someone looks at you seductively, seducing you to your own harm, it's as though they open their eyes and there are arrows ready drawn to destroy you. A thousand fighting men lying in ambush when you find yourself trusting in someone else, in some power outside of you. Or an eye of gifts and graces showering fruits and coined gold. So once again, it's beauty, the, the specious beauty, the fake beauty of what's outside of you is seducing you. But why then is your own eye filled with this shower of fruit and gold? Why a tongue impressed with honey from every wind? So, no, that would be the, the tongue of the other, right? Honey-tongued means what? Smooth talking. Smooth talking, yeah. Yeah, have you seen the movie Smooth Talk? Do you know that? I'm not surprised it exists, but no. Oh, you should, you should watch it. It's a great movie. You know it, Ryan? It's based on the Joyce Carol Oates story, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Does anyone know that story? It's a, it's a horror story. The person who seduces the heroine is named Arnold Friend, and the abbreviation is A Friend. That's what it says on his car. Um, so, of course, he's safe and smooth talk in the movie he's played by Treat Williams and the young woman is played by Laura Dern when she was very young and he essentially talks her into going for a ride with him which turns out to be a really bad idea and that is it's because he's honey tongued so why a tongue impressed with honey from every wind why an ear a whirlpool fierce to draw creations in? Why a nostril wide inhaling terror trembling into fright? So why all of these things which are causing a seduction into disaster? And then why a tender curb upon the youthful burning boy? So the curb upon the youthful burning boy, that's not a good thing either. So what is the curb upon the youthful burning boy? What would that mean? What is the youthful burning boy prevented from doing? The next sentence makes it more explicit. 
What? Pleasuring them. Sorry? Pleasuring them. Yeah, or um, having sex pure and simple. So the youthful burning boy, why isn't sex universal? As Peter Weiss will put it in his great operetta. Do you guys, by the way, actually I should ask you this because no one in my other class knew the answer to this. Do you guys know who the Marquis de Sade was? Marquis de Sade, S-A-D-E. Do you, Ryan? Okay, but no one else does? Sorry? Sounds like a cool person. Why? Sad? Yeah. Oh. Oh, I have a No, what do you think of? With another word like sadistic? Yeah, it's where the word sadistic or sadist comes from. Uh, it's from the Marquis de Sade. Yeah. So the Marquis de Sade was a figure in French Revolutionary times, and he was, he is where we get the word sadistic. And he was a writer and a sadist and a masochist and a person who engaged in and also wrote fictions about incessant orgies of the most violent and strange and inventive sex possible. And he was the subject of an operetta by someone named Peter Weiss called, it's got one of the great titles of all time, The Assassination, sorry, The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat by the traitor Charlotte Corday as performed by the inmates of the asylum at Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. And it's usually simply called Marat slash Sade, but that's the full title. And one of the songs they sing in it is the song whose chorus is, what's the point of a revolution without general copulation? So that is what the voice from the grave is asking also. Somehow that voice from the grave must be the youthful burning boy. Why a tender curb upon the youthful burning boy? Why a little curtain of flesh on the bed of our desire? So what's that little curtain of flesh anatomically? The hymen. So why do humans have hymens? Why? why this curb upon general sexual interaction? And so she's hearing this, and then we get the virgin started from her seat and with a shriek fled back unhindered, as the clod of clay promised, until she came into the veils of Har. So this question, these questions, this pit, this set of horrifying, horrible, but real questions she can't take. And she goes running back to the realm of innocence, but it's not clear the realm of innocence is the right place to go after this experience. So, strange from... Okay, we'll catch up. We'll do uh, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell and start with America after break. So, do some reading. Have a good break. Enjoy your trip. Thank you. And I hope the weather will get better. I think it'll be anxiety in the morning. Do you have any um, Boston recommendations? <laughs> oh, you can be Boston for the Boston recommendation. Remind me where you're from. Did you have a time? New York. Oh, okay.
That's right. Um, it's a, it might be a little bit hard to uh, 